Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Okay, Baha'i Blogcasters. Uh, we're in for a real treat today. At least I hope we are. You better be good. Mm. Um, my uncle, uh, Dr. Rhett Diesner from Lewiston, Idaho, in Lewis Clark State College, where he's a professor of psychology, happened to come into town to do my other podcast that I do with Reza Aslan called uh, Metaphysical Milkshake for Soul Pancake and uh, Luminary Media. And he was speaking on beauty because that's his area of expertise, the psychology of beauty, the spirituality of beauty. And he crashed in my guest room. Isn't that right, Uncle? It was great. Did you sleep all right? I did. Yeah, we've got some nice uh, nice mattress there, the Tempur-Pedic. Right, and the whole spiritual atmosphere of the home. It was great for me. <laughs> I can't tell if you're being <laughs> facetious. Me? <or> <laughs> um, but uh, so, and before you go and catch your plane back to Idaho today to do whatever it is you do, I, I thought I'd nab him for a Baha'i blogcast. All right, I feel honored. But Rhett, throughout my life, has been a great Baha'i uh, spiritual teacher. Uh, whenever I have issues with a quote or um, I'm struggling with a talk, I'll write him. He'll always give me like pages of information and good quotes and things to talk about and points of view. And it's always been really helpful. And we've become very good friends since I met you. When you married my Aunt Wendy, my dad's sister, that was, was that early 80s? 82, 81? 1978. Whoa, 78. Okay. I didn't know Wendy that well during those years. I didn't get to know her till like 80, 81, something like that. But I remember you guys living in that little house in Toppenish, Washington. So why don't you start at the beginning and tell your story up until marrying Aunt Wendy. So you're you're from Eastern Washington? It's true. Uh, I grew up in Yakima, Washington, and uh, my parents were going to Firesides in 1955 and 1956 while I was in utero. So I think I had a good uh, spiritual influence on the little embryo that I was. And We're my, still spiritual embryos, Rat. Oh, shucks. It's so true, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, my parents became the eighth and ninth member of the founding spiritual assembly in Yakima, Washington. And I got to go to children's classes growing up and hang out with people from all over town and different classes and different colors. And uh, I was really, uh, I feel really fortunate about that. So you really had a... What's a Baha'i upbringing in the 60, early 60s yeah. in Yakima, Washington? What does that look like? Yeah. Well, it was, it was, it was pretty pleasant. Uh, we would go to children's classes once a week. Oh my gosh, I just remember my mother even played the piano a little bit while we sang Baha'i songs. I forgot she even could do that. And uh, we had workbooks that were published uh, through the National Assembly and we would work on them with uh, five or six other children, and it just, uh, of course, it all made sense. Faith is so logical, and, you know, independent investigation of truth. No one was shoving anything down my throat. They were just telling me a spiritual story that made sense. 
That's great. And did that stick with you through your teenage years and college years? Well, once I got to be a teenager and, uh, you know, it was the late 60s and, you know, a religion that says, uh, you know, don't take drugs and don't have sex, that sounded crazy. Yeah. So there was a little pushback, a little rebellion on that? Uh, yeah, there we go. Point. Yeah, a year or two of high school, we could say I was a little Baha'i rebellious. <laughs> That's a good phrase, Baha'i rebellious. <laughs> And uh, so how does that, then you went to, to nursing school in the 70s. What, what, uh, what happened on your spiritual journey that maybe got you back on track? Yeah, well, uh, I think it was, uh, I went off to college in 1974 to uh, a really nice school, uh, Whitman College in Walla Walla. And I realized psychologically that you know, I needed that separation from my parents because for me, the uh, Baha'i faith was all about them. And uh, but then once I was on my own, I thought I have to decide what I believe and what's the truth and what's reality. And I was sort of in crisis and uh, did a lot of meditation on what's life. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, wow, Baha'i faith makes sense of everything. And I literally had like a born again experience, just like evangelical Christians talk about and just got totally turned on to the faith. Do you remember what happened? Was there something you read? Was there a mystical experience you had, a connection with another Baha'i that you had that what, what uh, made it turn that corner? Well, I was meditating on whether uh, God existed and whether there could actually be morality or was it just all relative. And I realized that maybe even the best thinkers couldn't prove that one way or another but it, it was the way I wanted to live my life. It was sort of like, I want to ally myself with the forces of good. And I knew Baha'is lived in every town, so I just looked up the Baha'i phone number in Walla Walla, and I'm a reader, so I contacted the librarian, and I spent all the rest of my college money on a stack of Baha'i books, and uh, I think some answered questions totally turned me on and still is like my favorite book. That's amazing, because... That's a book I really struggle with. Mm-hmm. Like I can, I can read other Baha'i books by Baha'u'llah, and I, I, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I feel like I understand them, and I can get behind them, and I and I get where he's coming from, and I know that there's a lot of layers to it that I'm not getting, but I, I really get the gist of it and some of the reverberations around those books like the Egon and stuff like that. But some answered questions, I have tried to read it. I've gotten halfway through it, like, you know, both the old version and the new version. Mm-hmm. And I'm about halfway through the new version. And I just don't understand half of what is being said in there. <laughs> what, what is What gives with that? I mean, I just really, I mean, the sentences are really clear, but then I try and add it all up in my head and it just doesn't, it doesn't go into my brain. What's wrong with me? Diagnose me. You're a psychologist. Yeah, really. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I got nothing for that. I just, uh, I think of the some answered questions is so logical. And, you know, in junior high, my friends all called me Spock. And I think the some answered questions is a very cognitive approach to the faith. And I think I, I was really comfortable with that. And uh, it just kind of appealed to my rational faculty. All right. So then take us, move us forward then. 
well, I was pre-med and I wanted to, you know, continue on with school forever. And I thought, no, no, I'm a Baha'i now. I have to go serve humanity. So I should just drop out and get a job where I can really help people. And in those days, you could get a registered nurse degree in two years. So I jumped out of Whitman, went to Walla Walla Community College, got a two-year RN, and pioneered to the Yakima Indian Reservation and worked in the emergency room. Wow. What, what, what was that like? Do you have any stories from the front lines? No, oh, it was tremendously horrible. You know, we grow up in this uh, society where we were totally kept away from death. In fact, I think on your metaphysical milkshake at Luminary, you have this talk with this death doula who mentions, you know, our society just ignores and denies death. And literally the first dead body I saw in my entire life, I was doing cardiac massage on it. And uh, that's just not right. Wow. Wow. What else did you see? Oh, all sorts of dreadful stuff, but it really helped me grow up. I was a really kind of fearful, anxious kid, and you know, working a couple years in the emergency room toughens you up quite a bit. So it was, it was really good for my personal development and very satisfying. You work in an emergency room, you go home every night and think, wow, I made a difference. So Yeah, you saved lives. Yeah. And uh, in your spiritual growth progress was continuing through this time? Uh, well, you'd hope so. <laughs> I guess a lot of spiritual development is about improving our, our character strengths and our virtues. And uh, Emergency Room gave me a lot of opportunities for that. And uh, I was also, at the time when I'd fallen in love with uh, Wendy, uh, Rain's beautiful aunt. And uh, so uh, that, those were some good times. That's great. And then you, you guys lived in eastern Washington for quite some time. Uh, not too, not too long. I only worked uh, as a the nurse for two years, and then I thought uh, I wanted to follow my true love, which was psychology. So we drove around and looked at various colleges, and uh, decided to go to Eugene, Oregon, in nineteen eighty. Okay. Yeah. No, really, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We just, uh, Wendy and I had had a baby, and uh, we moved to Eugene, and I finished a bachelor's degree. I, I wanted to do kind of hardcore psychology, so I was doing physiological psych and working in a cat lab, and we were doing single cell recording in the brains of cats, and it was all real cutting-edge science and pretty fascinating. That's great. Did you get your master's there as well? I did. I did. I wanted to be a hardcore biological psychologist, but I was taking a grad class on it uh, end of my senior year, and the guy pointed out there's no jobs in this field. Uh, there's nothing in industry, nothing private. I realized I, I had a wife and children, and I needed to be responsible, so I thought, oh, I'll go into a school psychology program. Every district in America has to hire a school psychologist. Oh, okay. And, and so that's what you got your master's in? Yeah, I got my master's degree in that. Yeah. Then came Harvard University and moral psychology. Is that is that what happened? That educational <clears throat> psychology and yeah. How, how do you how do you jump to that? Well, I got my first job in school psych, working for the uh, Yakima Tribal Schools, and uh, again, that was very educational for me. It was very very helpful to learn to be a, a minority. I mean, of course, I'd grown up with white privilege, and so. Working in an all-Indian school was, uh, was really good for me, and I, I hope I was able to um, serve their psychological interests. 
but a nearby college hired me to do a night class so I taught my first college class and I, it, I thought whoa this is it this is me this is my calling yeah what were you teaching my very first class was developmental psychology where yeah. a little college called Heritage College outside Toppenish Washington so then I thought, well, to get this as a full-time gig, I need to get a doctorate. So again, I meditate a little bit. What should, uh, what should a Baha'i psychologist study? And I thought, well, morality. Morality and spirituality are so closely linked. That would be a really good field for me. So uh, all through my psych undergrad, you know, I'd read about Lawrence Kohlberg and his work on moral reasoning. And I thought, oh, that's really fascinating and important. And you know, Baha'i faith emphasizes reasoning and understanding and morality, so this would be a good thing for a Baha'i to study. So I applied to Harvard and got in. So it seems like throughout your youth, there was a lot of taking it very seriously, your responsibility and role as a Baha'i, your responsibility and role as a father, and also what interested you the most and that all of these different twists and turns and junctions that happened were meditated upon thought about very deeply and there was some you know divine purpose maybe in the choices that you that you made um can you tell us a little bit more about that about that that process because this is like five or six life decisions you've just talked about (laughs) and you've always used the word meditated on on these life decisions well, you know, I'm not talking about any kind of deep, get out of yourself, spiritual, Eastern kind of meditation, but more the kind of contemplative, reflective, uh, read a prayer, uh, and then do some thinking and contemplation, and uh, try to make some decisions that are going to be good for both uh, my individual and family life, and hopefully find a way to serve humanity better. And that, and that worked. Well, I've certainly been able to enjoy my professional life, and uh, most of the time I've enjoyed my Baha'i life. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, I don't want to make a dichotomy there. These two things are totally integrated, and I I, I try to always keep them integrated. So what was your experience like at Harvard studying moral psychology under Lawrence Colbert? Well, in one way, it was really refreshing because, uh, you know, I always tried to be an open teacher of the faith and teach my professors and teach my fellow students and at least introduce them to the faith. And most of my professors, you know, they weren't very cool with that. And, you know, psychology professors, uh, they tend to run 60, 70 percent atheists. And so it was more sort of like a pat on the head. Oh, oh, that's cute. You don't really need to say any more. Mm-hmm. But when I got to working with Lawrence Kohlberg, he he really believed in diversity. And from his point of view, it was an advantage to his department to have a Baha'i in it. And, and that was kind of refreshing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. What else can you tell us about your Harvard time and your studies there? Oh, well, uh, you know, it, it is really intense. There's so many things to do. The Baha'is were really active and we were active in forming a Baha'i club at the uh, College of Education, and then I got elected to the assembly, and we we're busy doing teaching campaigns. And uh, but at the same time, uh, the academic workload is just incredibly demanding. You know, it's an eighty-hour week just to study, and so I really felt torn a lot. I wanted to serve the faith directly in the community, but at the same time, I wanted to, uh, you know, follow Shoghi Effendi's advice and try to excel in my studies. 
So it was pretty challenging. Um, plus, my wife had to go to work to help support us because I wasn't making much money as a grad student. So I had to you know, not take any classes after 2 p.m. because I had to get home in time for my uh, youngest child to come home from elementary school. So it was uh, wonderful, but really intense times. Yeah, I remember that. I visited you a lot during those you days. You did. Yeah. And uh, we would play basketball. We did. <laughs> we played a lot of basketball. Uh, and a little random, uh, your son was uh, about uh, five, six, seven, yeah, somewhere, yeah, somewhere exactly. there. Yeah, exactly. He was six and seven in those days. Yeah. and uh, But it was it was great. You would let me crash in your living room. And I'd play songs for you guys on my guitar. And I was studying acting. And you would you had Coca-Cola in the little bottles. <laughs> Gosh, that's true. Do you still have the Coca-Cola in the little bottles? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. About four years ago, I was able to get off the Coca-Cola uh, thanks to uh, coconut water. <laughs> you you, trend, you segued? I you did. didn't go to a 12-step program for <laughs> Coca-Cola addiction? Well, I tell you, I almost needed to. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's great. And then what, what else about your, your thesis? Was that, was that difficult, uh, butting up... Uh, being being a Baha'i and kind of butting up against the the academic system, the the world of academics, it's so competitive, it's so secular, it's often very kind of you know Marxist, leftist, you know, in a way that can be um, that can overwhelm any other possible path. And uh, did you do you have some issues there? Well, I did have some issues in a couple different directions. Uh, my first thing I wanted to do my doctoral dissertation was on was studying consultative epistemology. I wanted to uh, study how Baha'is come to their decisions of truth during consultative process. I thought this would A, be really important to contribute to the literature and also would be able to you know, put the faith out there in academia. But to do that, you needed to get permission through the National Assembly, and it was, I don't want to say red tape, that doesn't sound very complimentary, but anyway, I made some efforts in that regard, and uh, I, I didn't get the, the green light on that. Wait, you, you didn't get the green light from the powers that be to do a thesis on consultation? Well, the thing is, I wanted I wanted to collect data, so I literally like wanted to go into uh, spiritual assembly meetings. Oh, so yeah, you, you can see, you know, all the confidentiality issues. Right. And, you know, how was I going to paint the picture? And I think whatever committee at National was making decisions was thinking, "Whoa, this this could be dicey." Yeah. No, then that does all of a yeah. sudden make sense. Yeah. Because yeah. you need to yeah. monitor the consultative process and see how decisions were arrived at yeah. and. Uh, hear the different people's opinions but if yeah. they know they're being recorded they may not be as honest as they would be yeah lots of complications so i was a little frustrated but i certainly didn't uh, didn't blame the national uh, offices i mean they, they need to protect the faith and i was a cowboy so what did you move on to in your studies well then the next thing i wanted to do is i wanted to uh study the uh stages of truth so colberg's theories about moral reasoning and the stages we go through, but I thought, well, how do people arrive at what they think is true? And I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of do a, a lifespan perspective on how people transform their viewpoints of what is true as they go through life. And I, I pitched that to Kohlberg, and he was like, sure, you can do that. That'll be just fine. But if you do what I want to do, I'll pay you to do it. Oh. <laughs> 
And I was like, oh, I don't want to be a materialist. Perhaps I can frame this as being supportive to my mentor. <laughs> uh-huh. So what did, what did he want you to do? He, he wanted me to study the moral self and how the moral self is developed and integrated and becomes a core part of our identity. Now, Kohlberg had this test. Tell us about this moral test of Kohlberg's. I always <clears throat> thought this was really fascinating and that it also is very applicable to the Baha'i faith. Well, his, his work, uh, the uh, empirical aspect of it is asking people a moral dilemma. Well, the most famous one is the Heinz dilemma about uh, a guy in Europe whose wife is dying from cancer uh, and there's an expensive drug that might save her, but he uh, doesn't have enough money for it. So the question is, should he steal the drug to save his wife? And then... Kohlberg wasn't so interested in whether you said yes or no, but then we inquire into your reasoning. Well, why do you think so? Uh, what's your reasons for that? And then we'd look at the structure of the reasoning, which would then show uh, what stage of uh, development. You so were. what are the different stages? Well, uh, for preschoolers, it's called heteronymous or punishment orientation. And for School-age kids, they're generally what's called instrumental. Morality is all about black and white and dichotomous and to serve yourself. And then when you hit your beginning of your teenage years, you start to be able to get out of yourself and start thinking abstractly and true golden rule can come into place. And Kohlberg called it the good boy, good girl stage, kind of the boy scout, girl scout stage, also called interpersonal stage. Which actually, people, you know, you, even Al-Baha says, you know, it's difficult to develop after adolescence. And most people stay in that stage. I mean, if you just go around the world and randomly pluck people out of their country and give them some dilemmas, they tend to answer them at the interpersonal level. So, and so they're answering at not the good boy, good girl stage? but you know, what? Literally, they are. They're, yeah. they're, they're thinking, you know, if you ask somebody the ideal solution to a dilemma, they care about people's feelings. They try to think about golden rule and what would they do if they were in their shoes. And, uh, you know, it's good, solid adult moral reasoning. But, uh, but for instance, stage four is a systemic stage. So instead of relying on individual people's feelings, you start thinking, okay, how does the result of this dilemma affect the whole system? And uh, so... That's so a, that, that would be more of a Baha'i way of thinking, hopefully. Well, yeah, Baha'is are definitely systemic thinkers for sure. Because uh, I think in t- contemporary society, um, there's so much of like, hey, um, as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, I can kind of do whatever I want. And, and that's, <laughs> the, that's kind of the extent of the moral reasoning. Yeah. And there's a lot to be said for that. There is, there is. That's know, a, that's... Not hurting other people, not impeding other people's journeys. Yeah. Hey, I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to get in the way, but I'm going to just do, you know, whatever, whatever I want. So then how do you move to that next stage of, uh, uh, so this is a question for you as a psychologist yeah, and as a Baha'i. Sure, so sure. how do people move from that to stage four, looking at systems at vast human systems and what's best are you talking about like what's best for the mass of humanity is that what you mean or is it even bigger than that well to appreciate this system stage you have to look at Kohlberg's next stage which is the principled stage because where you get into trouble in the system stage is you identify with a particular system so maybe you become a patriot. I'm, a, I'm born in Canada, and I love my country, and I understand my constitution, and Canada, right or wrong? Right. 
Um, but it could also be I'm a capitalist or yeah. I'm a socialist yes, or yes. something, some other system. Yeah, exactly. That you have a fealty toward. Yeah, and you see the same problem with religion, uh, the exclusivity of religion. I belong to this religious system, and your system must be wrong. Right. And people, when they start grappling with that, then they become moral relativists. They think, well, okay, there's if you know all these all these different religions can't agree, and you know who who's to say the American Constitution is better than the Mexican Constitution? And so people become these moral relativists, like morality doesn't really exist. It's just kind of decided on by a group of people that's in power and in control, which takes us to his principled stage, which uh, aligns a little more with Baha'i psychology, you know, like in the the World uh, Peace Letter from the House of Justice from 1985, where they say, you know, every problem has a spiritually principled solution. Hmm. And so Kohlberg thought there were moral principles that are fundamental over time and space and that they're fundamental to every society, every culture. And they end up sounding a lot like the basic uh, moral principles of all religions. Um, Justice, love, honesty, trustworthiness. So he was arriving through science, through the science of psychology, at some spiritual truths about the highest level of moral reasoning being a- attached to key concepts that were even above kind of the ethics of creating a society. Am I saying that right? Well, that's I sure sounded smart. It's, it was there. great, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's I think was the, the big appeal to Kohlberg's theory for me. You know, we have to always be careful you know, imbuing our Baha'i ideas. I mean, like I went through a behaviorist stage in my master's program where all my professors were behaviorists. And all of a sudden I noticed everywhere in the writing talks about reward and punishment and the twin pillars are reward and punishment. Oh my gosh, behaviorism is the Baha'i theory because it's all about reward and punishment. And it's so emphasized and and clearly that's not the case. And then right, the core of behaviorism for people who don't know is just <laughs> that we're kind of... <clears throat> Is that we're programmable animals yeah, in some extent, yeah. and we don't have yeah, any kind of higher to- selves. Totally, and we're, you know, we're we're programmed both by DNA and by behavior on the outside, reward and punishment, like essentially like training a German shepherd. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But you know, I thought Kohlberg was on to something, and uh, it still makes sense to me to this day. I mean. You know, Baha'is were exhorted to look for the spiritual principle underlying any problem. And uh, that's a really worthy thing to do that can lead to unity and action. And uh, yeah, spiritual principles are where it's at. But then this guy, Kohlberg, he he killed himself. It's true, he did. <laughs> just just a couple years later. This, the, he was the... He was world-renowned. I remember studying him in undergrad psychology. Um it just goes to show. Is there is there anything you can say about that? Obviously, we don't want to disrespect yeah. a, a, a dead guy who had a probably mental illness, but uh, that wasn't. I mean, it's almost like in a Woody Allen movie or something like that. It's like a grad <laughs> student studying morality with the world-renowned moral teacher who then kills himself. Yeah, and, yeah. And how does a the decision to take one's own life? You know, how does that fit into that that moral spectrum that he's been studying for yeah. twenty years? Yeah. Yeah, it was really hard on me. Actually, he, he I just started writing my dissertation when when he committed suicide. So it was it was a really difficult thing for me and and very painful. I, I really uh, cared for Kohlberg. He was 
very supportive to me and very caring. And uh, but he had a lifelong battle with depression, and he'd been pretty upfront that he uh, he believed in the stoic viewpoint of suicide, which is suicide is rational if you can no longer fulfill your life's purpose. And his physical health was deteriorating, and I, he wasn't thinking quite as well as he used to. And then he dropped into a severe depression and had to go. Mm into an institution uh, mm -hmm. and I visited him there in fact I brought him a copy of Seven Valleys which he thanked me for but uh, he was clearly severely depressed and so on his first first time the hospital allowed him to go out on his own for a day was his last day wow that's tragic yeah and you had some other amazing teachers there at the time. Carol Gilligan, I remember uh, reading her in undergrad as well. Yeah. What was that like? Some other great thinkers you uh, <laughs> interacted with? Well, you know, Carol Gilligan was uh, really great and a real eye opener. Uh, you know, her best selling book was called In a Different Voice, and she just pointed out how. You know, several generations of psychologists' uh, belief about development was all about boys and out of the minds of men. I mean, the great Eric Erickson and John Piaget and Kohlberg, you know, they, uh, they were telling us what development was all about. But then when you pause and think, how good is an adult male psychologist at understanding the struggles of a 10-year-old girl? And you realize that that's going to be a pretty big leap of empathy compared to what a woman psychologist could understand about the mind of a 10-year-old girl. So she shook things up in a way that uh, I think was really helpful to the field. Yeah, so it shifted the focus into looking at women's issues and women's psychological issues through a special lens, especially right. through a, a woman's lens. Exactly. And uh, uh, that, that's great that that, was, that one volume was able to, to change things dramatically. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So one thing that I found interesting about your life, Uncle Rad, is you, you got your PhD from Harvard and you, I, I won't say you could have gone anywhere, but you probably had a lot of choices open to you. You could have gone into research, maybe even stayed at Harvard. Um, you could have, you know, been an author, but what you, you chose to make a really interesting decision for your career and your family at that point, which, um, uh, is pretty fascinating, and it's not a path that most people would have taken um, with that degree at that point in time. Can you tell us about that? Well, uh, my beloved Wendy, uh, she made a lot of sacrifices for me to go to school. I mean, uh, I was an undergraduate with a wife and children, and uh, then I wanted to go to master's grad school, then off to PhD school. And, you know, we were in, uh, for an American, pretty much utmost poverty, not for a world citizen. We, of course, still lived great. Um, and it was pretty challenging. And uh, I had promised her that we would move back to the Northwest when I finished my doctorate, uh, which wasn't a hard promise to make because, you know, it's one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And um, at the same time, I'd, uh, I'd grown up next to the Yakima uh, Indian Reservation and a job was opening up in Lewiston, Idaho and at a small liberal arts college and I applied for it and got it and it's right next to the Nez Perce Indian Reservation, the Nimipu, people that are just wonderfully noble and it was a great opportunity 
Uh, it was a teaching college, so I knew my research would have to take. Can you explain what that is to people who don't know? Sure. It's uh, a teaching college is where you throw all your energy into teaching and research is on the back burner. So I got a job which I was teaching four classes a semester every semester and I wanted to do it with excellence and the first few years I couldn't do any research whatsoever. It was completely focused on trying to become an effective teacher and inspire my students and I love that. It's a great bounty. Teaching is a wonderful honor. But after a few years of that, I thought, uh, you know, I really missed research and I wanted to make a contribution and I want to integrate the faith with that. So again, I was meditating on what should a Baha'i psychologist study? What's really important? What's, what's really troubling the world and how could a difference be made? And so in the 1990s, I got focused on materialism and I wanted to understand uh, how we became materialistic and how we could break out of that mold. And so I got a nice grant and did a few years of studies on that and resulted in a few publications, which I was able to co-publish with my students by training them in research methods. And that was, uh, that was pretty satisfying. That's great. I didn't know much about that chapter and what you were studying then. I think I was too full of myself at the time. Yeah. But what, did you, what did you learn about materialism? That's, that's, that's amazing. Well, we learned that uh, <laughs> materialism is uh, alive and well, and okay. Shoghi Effendi, of course, pointed out it was one of the biggest problems of living in the West. In fact, he called it a cancer that was you know, spreading from Europe and America to the rest of the planet, and uh, so uh, unfortunately, I was really good at documenting it, <laughs> but not so good at coming up with solutions for it, and uh, at which point uh, Landeg University in Switzerland was just starting up. Can you tell people about Landeg who don't know anything of the history? Yeah, Landeg was a property that uh, individual wealthy Baha'i purchased. Uh, it's in the most rural canton of Switzerland in an absolutely incredible place up on a beautiful mountain looking down on the Bowdoin Zee known as Lake Constance. And it had been a center of learning. And then uh, Hossein Danish, Dr. Hossein Danish, who'd been on the National Spiritual Assembly of Canada and as a psychiatrist, he wanted to start a university there, uh, which he did, and then invited me to teach sort of like part-time. They had like intensive blocks of courses. And I, I was in on their first undergraduate class and I would fly out for winter break or um, then later uh, lots of my summer breaks uh, from my college in Idaho to teach there and it, it was really a wonderful experience and um, being in the natural beauty of Switzerland and being able to go to uh, just to see the beauty of European architecture and the museums and the art. So you fell in, way, in love with that area in the same way Shoghi Effendi did? Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't help noticing that. It's true. Shoghi Effendi took many, many retreats to Switzerland. In fact, I would do what I called Baha'i tourist and try to uh, trace his footsteps and yeah. fulfilling to my heart. Did you find out anything about Shoghi Effendi kind of trying to retrace his footsteps or researching how he spent his time in Switzerland? Well, I did have one kind of cool mystical experience. The biggest waterfall in Europe is Schaffhausen, and Shoghi Effendi liked to go there. 
And okay. from reading between the lines, I kind of figured out the trail that he would walk to look at it. And then I was kind of looking for what would be the vantage point where maybe he would go to meditate while looking at the waterfall. And just stuck in the brush and overgrown was this uh, bench. And I just had this feeling that Shogi Fendi would sit on that bench and uh, look at the glory of the waterfall. And I took a photograph of it. And then when I, this is the old days before digital, and when I had it developed, there was just this huge bright sunlight spot on the bench that seemed to come from nowhere. And, uh, you know, I'm not into woo-woo mysticism, but it was like, whoa. <laughs> it was pretty cool. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you still have that photograph? I sure do. Yeah. Maybe you can yeah, share that great. with us. We'll publish it uh, <laughs> uh, along with the podcast. All right. That's amazing. So you were talking about two things at the same time, kind of your research into materialism and going to land egg. So bring us back to that part of the story. <clears throat> well, uh, at the same time, I was at land egg and I was trying to work up a curriculum. So this was a Baha'i university. Yes, How many enrolled explicitly. students and what percentage were Baha'is? <clears throat> it was a, a small number of students starting up and most of them were Baha'is. And uh, the curriculum was to be explicitly Baha'i, so where you uh, aim to integrate uh, the spiritual principles of the faith with the best of modern science. And I took that to be quite a challenge, a very encouraging, exciting challenge. So I was constantly studying the writings and getting into the databases and trying to build bridges between modern psychological science and the, the wisdom of the writings. <clears throat> At which point I noticed that Baha'u'llah mentioned beauty over and over and over. And uh, I had a, one of the early Baha'i databases called Ocean. And I put in various uh, permutations of the word beauty, beautiful, beauteous. And there was a thousand hits. Hmm. And I thought, Whew, this must be so important. And then I just started seeing beauty everywhere. I'd grown up with a forester father, so I'd, I'd love the beauty of nature. And for some weird reason, when I was 13 or 14, I decided I was going to be a great artist and follow in the footsteps of Van Gogh and did a lot of acrylics and oils. And so I kind of had this background to prepare me to be really turned on by beauty. But then the validation of how important beauty was spiritually and how often it's brought up in the faith and how even... You know, Baha'u'llah is called Jamala Mubarak, the blessed beauty. And then you just start seeing how many times beauty is emphasized in the prayers, in the Tao of Ahmad, in the long obligatory prayer. And I thought, ah, this is what I should turn my, my research to. I need to study the psychology of beauty. Wow, that, that's amazing. And it's because for me, I know when I read... I'm kind of a lazy reader of the Baha'i writings, and I read beauty, oh, the beauty of his countenance and the beauty of the Lord, and that by his beauteousness and the beauty, beauty, beauty. It, like, it feels really general to me. So can you talk me into a more specific understanding of the idea of beauty, both from a psychological standpoint and from the point of view of, of the Baha'i writings? Well, I think one of the really profound mystical experiences I had was when the, <clears throat> the Kitab Akdas was uh, fully published in English, which I think was uh, about 1992. And I read uh, the fourth paragraph where it says, we need to follow the laws of Baha'u'llah because of a love of his beauty. 
And I was just like, what? I just didn't make sense. I mean, I've been studying with Kohlberg and moral reasoning and how you need to reason out your moral problems and follow your deliberative reasoning. And and uh, Kohlberg always had a hard time turning that into action. You could be pretty high stage, but what was your behavior really? And you could find people at low stage that did beautiful, loving sacrifices. And so it didn't translate super well from your thinking to your action. And then we realize that, that the faith has to be a paradigm breaker, right? It's a whole new thing. It's going to recreate an entirely new civilization. So things have to be really different. And when you start delving into that fourth paragraph of the Actas, where it talks about uh, following Baha'u'llah's laws because of a love of his beauty, you start to realize that beauty is the motivator. Beauty is the missing link between your moral thinking, your moral deliberation, and your moral action. Beauty provides that inspiration. It, uh, uh, it's the attractive force, right? We all love to quote where Abdu'l-Bahá talks about how love is what holds the entire universe together. And then when you study the philosophy of beauty and love, you realize that the object of all love is beauty. Whenever we're loving anything, the thing that we're loving is the beauty of it. Hmm. And that becomes the motivator. Hmm. So, so there is no love without beauty? There is no love without beauty. When you're experiencing love, you're experiencing beauty. And when you're being moved by beauty, your heart's full of love. So why, in the, from a Western context, <clears throat> are, are we kind of so off base? Because... Uh, here's here's how I think, and maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm alone, but I think most people would kind of agree with me. Like I think about beauty, like okay, that's a beautiful painting, that's a beautiful sunset, that's a beautiful woman, that's a beautiful face, that's a beautiful man. This is a beautiful situation, you know, something like that. But it it feels general in a way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This is where I'm where I kind of struggle with it. Like. Mm-hmm. How can you? How can we specify beauty? Is it is it like Abdul Abdul Baha's ad, admonition to look for the one good quality and ignore the ten, <laughs> or look at the ten good qualities and ignore the one that we're that we're and and that's finding the beauty and the virtues of someone? Ah, that's that's a wonderful way to frame it, Rain. And uh, yes, exactly. Uh, if we're we're finding that one good quality in a person, we're finding the one thing that's beautiful about them. And one of the things that we notice about us human beings is we're intimately linked. Whatever you're thinking and feeling is going to influence how I'm thinking and feeling and vice versa in this feedback loop. And so if in my mind, in my soul, in my brain, I'm noticing one beautiful thing about you, I'm now modeling something beautiful in myself to be able to even notice that. And once I'm modeling that and noticing that beautiful thing about you, That's being conveyed to you, either directly by my actions or words or through some kind of mystical feeling. And so we get this beautiful beauty feedback loop that makes you more beautiful and reinforces that one beautiful quality of yours. And at the same time, that's making my mind uh, and heart a more beautiful place to be because it's modeling your beauty because I saw it. Is there a quote about beauty from the Baha'i faith that is your favorite? Is, uh, something mystical that'll kind of blow up what we think about beauty? Because again, <laughs> so much of what we think about beauty in the Western world is like physical beauty, the beauty industry, beautiful face, makeup, Kim Kardashian, Instagram models, stuff like this. 
and uh, but the, what the, something about like the quintessence of, of beauty itself. Well, I got a couple directions I'd like to go with that, but one of them comes out of the Seven Valleys, where Baha'u'llah says we should seek in every face the beauty of the friend. So again, when I'm seeing your beauty, what I'm really seeing is a reflection of the beauty of God. So every time I'm noticing beauty, whether it's in a human being in a deep spiritual way or the beauty of nature, every time we see beauty, we're seeing a sign of God. And this pervades the entire physical universe and it invades the entire spiritual universe, which of course are intimately connected and in reality one. Hmm. Hmm. The other kind of really cool mystical place to go with beauty is that if you examine the works of philosophers from Plato to Plotinus to the modern John Dewey to Renaissance philosophers like Ficino, they have great difficulty defining beauty, but at the same time, they all associate it with the concept of unity and diversity. That hmm. uh, to notice beauty is to notice the diversity of elements that have been unified into a whole. And uh, so we, we see beauty front and center at one of the most important Baha'i principles. Hmm. So when I talk to people about God, you know, there's so many stumbling blocks about believing in God. And, and the main one being that God in the tr Christian tradition was, you know, pictured, depicted rather, as a, an old white man on a cloud with a beard. And God's judgment and sending people to heaven or hell in a Judeo-Christian and even in the Muslim perspective is kind of, you know, seeped into the groundwater. When I have conversations with people about God, I always talk about love and I talk about art and I talk about music and that God is is connection. Like to, to think of of the creator, the creative source, um, uh, on terms that uh, are much larger, that evoke a feeling rather than a beingness of God, rather than like a creature God sitting on a throne or on a cloud or something like that. Is God beauty? Well, I think God is the most beautiful being in the universe. And when we look at the many different religious texts that mention that we're created in the image of God. We're talking about uh, the deepest human beauty is a reflection of the divine beauty. And it takes so much openness to try to understand that we can't understand God. You know, it's one of the most common things in the Baha'i writings that God is beyond any attribute beyond any conceptualization, beyond any knowledge of ours, but simultaneously closer to us than our life vein. And to be able to hold these two concepts simultaneously in your mind or your heart takes a tremendous amount of, of openness, which also ties into independent investigation of truth because that's all about being open. But I remember a talk you encouraged me to listen to by Stephen Phelps where he says, you know, the writings always emphasizing that we can't know God and that any attribute we give to God isn't true. He says, even being, 
And that just blew me away. I meditated on that for weeks. Wow, even being, saying God exists is giving God an attribute. And I thought, well, how could that not be true? God has to exist, right? But then I thought, if we delve into what we think existence means, no way is that God. Whatever we think existence is, that's not God's existence. That's amazing. Um, and you talked about openness and in and, and our discussion the other day, we were talking about, can you develop one's sense of beauty? Can you develop an, uh, uh, an increased sensitivity to witnessing beauty and finding beauty? And is that an important kind of spiritual path to take? I think it's an incredibly important part of the spiritual path. Because as I mentioned, beauty, on my take on the Baha'i writings, beauty is the motivator. It's what lifts us out of our thoughts and into our behavior just like I mentioned about the Akdas. Uh, Baha'u'llah doesn't want people following his laws because of a fear of punishment. He doesn't want them following his laws because of a desire for a reward of heaven. He wants us to follow the laws because of his beauty, because our hearts are so turned on to Baha'u'llah's spiritual beauty that just like when we're in love, we just want anything that the lover desires. That's our desire. And... Uh, it becomes a complete game changer in uh, both human relationships at the individual level and then about how a system will be run um, rather than uh, rules of punishment and reward. It's about this motivation to do what's right because it's beautiful. And so can, can we develop that? They've done studies <clears throat> about developing beauty, haven't they? Well, they have. Uh, in fact, I have. And in the psychological research literature, uh, beauty and openness are very, very closely linked. Uh, openness is considered one of the big five personality traits, but research has showed it's one of the hardest ones to develop intentionally. Um, however, it can be done, and uh, like most things, it has to do with uh, sensitizing yourself uh, mindfully. Um, you know, beauty is all around us because, as we know, as, as it's mentioned in the writings, including in the Kadabi Gan, that the signs of God are in everything, and those signs are beautiful. So it becomes like a cool detective adventure. Uh, can I detect the signs of beauty in that thing I'm looking at over there? What what is the beauty? Um, Abdul Baha uh, tells a very cool apocryphal story about Jesus. And there's a dead dog carcass by the side of the road, and it's ugly and it stinks. And the uh, Jesus's apostles walk by it, and they're like, "Ooh, yucky! Ooh, yucky!" And when Jesus gets to it, he says, "Oh, look at those beautiful white gleaming teeth." And uh, so this is just an example of the that we have the ability to find the beauty in everything. And by our conscious efforts, we can continue to grow it. In my own research, uh, on several studies, I've had people keep uh, beauty logs or beauty journals where they consciously, purposely have a weekly assignment to notice something beautiful in nature and write it down and describe why it's beautiful and to notice something beautiful in art or made by a human and describe its beauty and then to notice something beautiful in human behavior and record that in their beauty log as well as to identify a beautiful idea that they've run across accidentally or purposefully 
And the research shows if you do this weekly for 10 or 12 weeks, you're going to actually get a boost in your trait of appreciation of beauty. So a trait's not just a temporary thing. It's something that lasts. Wow, that's amazing. I love that that journal activity. That would be a great thing for a youth group or something like that. To, uh, so so what, are the, what are the four again? Uh, uh, something in nature, something built or constructed or painted or right. designed. Design, that's the word I like to use. And, uh, and then um, a beautiful trait that you see in someone. Right, generally what the Baha'is call virtues. You're looking for a virtue in action. What did somebody do that was a beautiful thing? And then a beautiful idea. Beautiful idea. And uh, what's an example of like a beautiful idea? My, my favorite example is the center point of the Baha'i faith, which is the oneness of humanity. Ah, it is okay. a beautiful idea. Okay, great. I also was thinking, I, I, I gave a talk on the Bob the other night, and there's this quote uh, that, again, Stephen Phelps sent me. It's provisional translation from an unpublished tablet. It says, I counsel thee with these three words. Shouldst thou act in accordance therewith, all sorrow will depart from thee in this world. That's a big statement. Yeah, that's huge. They are the following. So here's the three things. Be not content with anything when once thou becomest aware that it hath a still higher degree. Be not untruthful, though thy very life hang in the balance. And act not towards others, save as thou wouldst desire for thine own self. So, there's three things. The third one, I'm going to go backwards. The third one is the golden rule, plain and simple. Mm Mm-hmm. The second one is be not untruthful, though thy very life hang in the balance. And that shows like the primacy of the, you know, truthfulness being the foundation of all virtues. Like it's it, it, that and, and, and this. And again, the point of all this is that all sorrow will depart from thee in this world. But the first one is the trickiest one. Be not content with anything when once thou becomest aware that it hath a still higher mm-hmm. degree. Now that seems like an almost impossible task Mm -hmm. because everywhere you look something can have a Mm -hmm. higher degree Mm -hmm. so first of all i can look at myself and see wow i i have a higher degree so i can become more compassionate and more kind and more patient and there's a lot there's plenty to work on in myself also my body like i can i can eat better i can (laughs) exercise better right there's um, I can comport myself better. I can make better decisions. I can be more disciplined. I can follow through on things better. So to be in a constant process of uh, of working on myself to become a higher degree. But then you look everything around you. Like you could be your local spiritual assembly. Can we be functioning at a higher degree? Can my house have a higher degree of aesthetic beauty to it? Can my garden be have a higher degree? Like trying to instill the highest degree in everything around us is also really reminiscent of what God does. Uh, <laughs> but there is a God-like, there's emulating the divine in seeking to raise everything up to its maximum capacity. And I keep talking about beauty, but I'm talking about a higher degree, like raising these things right. to a higher degree. And it reminds me also of Shoghi Effendi designing the Holy Land and the Ooh, gardens and the architecture yeah. and trying to find the highest possible degree of capacity and beauty in the buildings, in the gardens. I mean, the, the amount that 
he spent on those gardens is is amazing. And I, I imagine a lot of Baha'is are like, geez, Shoki Fendi, like maybe write some more books and forget the gardens. You know, let, let someone else deal with it. But um, so two things. One, that doesn't feel very easy because it feels like nonstop work. But apparently sorrow will depart from thee yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. if, I under, if we undertake this. But how does this apply to, to your study of beauty? Yeah. Well, it's beautifully interconnected. Uh, first of all, I translate that first one as the process of perfection. We're constantly aiming to grow closer to God, which means growing uh, closer to perfection. And after unity and diversity, perfection is the most common definition of beauty. You see something perfect, it's beautiful. But we also all know that things aren't stationary. Everything's in movement, as Abdu'l-Bahá says. And consequently, the journey, that process towards God, is the perfecting process. And although it is work, uh, it's like glorious work. I mean, we know the most depressed people are people that are unemployed. Work is golden. And so it's a beautiful form of work to perfect ourselves because just that very process of improvement is a beautiful thing. Is there an, another quote about beauty that you'd like to leave us with? Yes. Here. Yes, thus there is. <clears throat> uh, in uh, prayers and meditations, there's two different prayers revealed by Baha'u'llah, one in a female mode and one in a male mode, and they're almost identical. And their second line is, Beauty is my sanctuary. Hmm. And what does that mean to you? Uh, that means what you were just talking about, what the Bob said there, that if we take these actions, they will get rid of sorrow. Sanctuary. Beauty is my sanctuary. It's the place where we're safe, where we're protected, where we can grow and develop and experiment, uh, make ourselves vulnerable, and step into the path of ever creating more beauty. And why is beauty important in this day and age? I mean, political systems are breaking down, economic systems, agricultural systems, water, social justice. Why should we care about beauty? Well, uh, literally, uh, beauty will save the world. I mean, this is a meme started by Dostoevsky, picked up by Solzhenitsyn. But there's just some research coming out of Australia right now, which uh, is proving something that I've said for a long time, which is, if you love something, you find it beautiful, and if you find it beautiful, you want to protect it. So literally, beauty could be what causes us to turn around the entire climate change pollution issue. But also many other issues, social justice oh, issues. absolutely. Uh, immigration issues. Absolutely. Seeing the beauty in the other uh, and uh, wanting to love it and do what's best for that other. Yes, indeed. Uncle Rhett, it's been such a pleasure uh, having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for sharing your time. I know you got to get into an Uber now. I uh, really appreciate it. And I really want to uh, also just you know, publicly appreciate you for all the spiritual mentorship that you've given me <laughs> over the years. You know, I went, you knew me when I was in some dark times and some crazy times and visited me when I was living in rat hole infested apartments in New York City and attacked in East Harlem and uh, we've gone through a lot and you were always just so supportive and and loving and always brought such wisdom uh, to my to my process and journey and uh, I just truly thank you uh, for that it was I love you very much and I'm really so grateful 
And you do that for so many people, your students, your kids, <laughs> your Baha'i community in Idaho. Thank you. I love you too, Rain. And we'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.